morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumter, and today we're going to be talking with Ken Matos, who is the Director of People Science at CultureAmp. How are you, Ken? I'm good. How are you today, John? I am fantastic. I'm as fantastic as you could be when the California air has turned from sweet to poison. But other than that, I'm great. I'm having the time of my life. We haven't done this before, so would you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell the audience how you got here? Absolutely. As you said, I'm the director of people science at CultureAmp. My background is as an organizational psychologist. So after I graduated with a psychology degree, I said, you know, what am I going to do with this? And ended up pursuing a master's in industrial and labor relations at Cornell. Did that for two years decided I really wanted to learn more about why the right answers are the right answers, and then did a PhD at George Washington University, where I went on to study racial and ethnic harassment and discrimination for the Department of Defense for five years, and then transitioned to a think tank in New York City, where I focused on national research on workplace flexibility, remote work, and a lot of the other big issues that have become quite prominent right now. And now I work at CultureAmp, where I lead a team of psychologists in North America and EMEA to help our customers figure out what they need to hear from their employees in order to make better decisions. So tell me a little bit about doing research on, I think you said racial and ethnic harassment in DOD for five years. You could not have been everybody's favorite guy wandering around with that set of questions. What was that like? It was really interesting. I feel like there's a lot of people who really just want to say what is happening and have it addressed openly. I think what was always hard with working for the Department of Defense and something so hard is wanting to be able to deal with the issue outside of the political spotlight so that you could actually make decisions that were effective rather than decisions that might look good to external reporters or people. So finding a way to balance that conversation piece along with what was good advice was always an interesting step. Yeah, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but it seems to me that those issues vary by service branch. And I'm not sure that I can tell you exactly where the line is there, but at the working level, there's a difference that you don't see at the senior level of those settings. It must have been just fascinating to get to see that up close and have the opportunity to influence those things. What a great background. So now you're at CultureAmp. What does CultureAmp do? So CultureAmp is a culture platform. We focus on helping organizations collect, uh, understand, and act on employee feedback. So their experience of engagement, well-being, what they think their organization should do differently to better engage customers, any of that information that you want to know what employees are thinking and feeling to be able to better lead or guide them is sort of half of what we do. The other half is focusing on the feedback we give to employees. So performance management and helping them understand what they need to do to grow their careers and be more effective in their roles so that they can have the kind of success and outcomes that they're really looking for and the organization needs to thrive. So these are highly charged, although they're rarely described that way, but these are highly charged communications, both from the employee to the employer about how things are and from the employer to the employee about how they're doing. Those conversations often contain more politics than substance. And I assume that you see that every day inside of culture. 
How do you sort out, or do you see a difference between the sort of political intent? Like if you ask me today how I feel about my job, I think I'll give you a very positive answer because I'd like to keep my job. And if you ask me tomorrow when I'm feeling more secure about the job, I might give you a somewhat different answer. And that's what I mean by politics, is that a lot of responses about how work is going on both sides of the equation are kind of conditional on the current context. How do you figure that out when you're trying to give advice about being a sustained, successful organization? That's a great question. I think one of the things that's really important is to not get fixated on the number. When people do surveys, they get a score and then they think about it the way they would a score on a test. And that ends up taking you down the wrong road because then you're, you're just thinking about the number and not the context around the number like you're pointing out. I think one of the things that we sometimes confuse is engagement with happiness. And so we would be thinking, oh, this is a rough time. The score has to go down. When in reality, people are, like you said, thinking about what's their best alternative option. And so their engagement, their commitment to doing a good job and staying with an organization may go up if things are bad and this is a safe place and that can feel good, even if other things are not as wonderful as they would like. By the same token, if they're in a situation where they're like, there's lots of other fish in the sea, why am I putting up with this? The very exact same situation can be rated very differently. And so I think it's important for leaders to think about what's the context in which people are answering the question in order to determine whether or not this is a really good thing or a not so great thing when scores are going up or down. And so I think that's where making sure you also get some of the qualitative comments. So what people are saying and then they describe why they chose to answer the question that way really allows you to turn around and say like, ah, okay, this is what's driving you say this is good or bad, and I can now think about real interventions as opposed to reacting to just this contextless number. Got it. So I should back up and ask you a couple more questions about Culture Amp. You know, I realize that I don't know as much as I might about Culture Amp. I assume that the heart of the company is a survey and consulting associated with the survey business, and that there is, as you hinted, a intelligent tools analysis, maybe NLP, of the text construct and preform answers. What else does the company do? What's it about? So I think at our core, we really believe that a lot of the complex people science that drives what goes on in organizations can be a lot more accessible. Early in my career, I was in a car with a bunch of MBAs, and when they asked what I was studying and I said business psychology, they all stopped and said, wait, we're getting taught what people should do. You're getting taught how to actually get them to do it. And that piece of realizing that there was a way to actually influence people in constructive ways was something that they weren't getting in their training and something I think Ultramp really believes in providing our customers, not just you know, consultants going to come in, tell you a bunch of abstract things, you sort of shrug and then go back to doing what you've always done, really emphasizing what does this mean? How do you make choices about it? A lot of times my customers will say, we see what's going on, but we've never been able to articulate it or make it more than an anecdote or story by being able to do these surveys or these performance reviews in a standardized way. We're able to convey a coherent story to leaders 
that helps them understand how they need to adjust what they do to get employees to do the right thing for the organization. And so I think a lot of what we focus on is the enablement and empowerment through our skills coach tools, our management training, and other automated and online resources so that people can say, I know what I need this person to do. This is how I get them to do it. That's interesting. So that sounds like you are almost able to or able to show a direct relationship between the changes in, I don't really want to say engagement scores, but somehow changes in the gestalt at the organization that you can encourage and support and actual financial or schedule or product quality improvements. Is that right? Do you do that? Yeah. For example, we've done research that shows that when people take the survey and a manager uses our action tool to figure out what they can do in response to a score that they may want to improve, they tend to get at least an 8% increase on average in that score the next time they do that survey as a result of having a clear, actionable plan that doesn't just say, okay, I know you're not happy, but what am I going to do about it? Ah, here's some suggestions on what I should do about it. There's ways for me to make sure that it's working as intended. Oh, look, the score went up and people are having better conversations, collaborating more, or otherwise having a more engaging and retaining experience. That's interesting because I think that you've said or will say that paying attention to the score isn't really an incredibly good idea, but if you want to justify how the thing works, you need to pay attention to the score. That's kind of what I'm getting here. I bet you could clarify that for me. Yeah. So I think there's a difference between understanding and assessing. So if you're focused on assessing is something working, then the score is valuable. If you're trying to figure out what you should do, the score can be a bit distracting because you get happy or, or depressed because it's good or bad, but you're not thinking about why is this score and what can I do to change it. Uh, in psychology, there's a concept called learning and performance goals. Uh, people who have performance goals are really focused on, did I get the best possible score? with very little concern about how they get there. Those approaches tend to be less sustainable. They tend to uh, limit what the person can imagine or do long-term because they're really focused only on, you know, am I going to get the reward? People who have the learning goals are really focused on, how do I do this better? So they're looking at scores and saying, what does this tell me about what I should change, what I should evolve? And they tend to end up with more creativity, more ability to deal with things as circumstances change, because they're not focused on just hitting the goal. They're really focused on how they hit the goal and how they're going to hit it in different circumstances. And so I think there's an interesting sort of paradox for a lot of people who are performance-oriented, who need to look at the score to know if they're being successful, but have a hard time stepping beyond it know what that the context around it is telling them about how they should behave or act. Well, I gotta tell you, I don't often take notes in these conversations. I just wrote down that I need to come back to you and find out more about the research about the difference between learning and performance goals. That may help me understand all sorts of things. So thanks for mentioning that. Absolutely. Do you think there's a yeah, yeah, 
that's actually that's actually going to be very useful. Do you think there's a relationship between we've talked about this a little bit, but maybe dig a little deeper into the relationship between context and scores. So when you look at engagement, it seems to me that what we're seeing right now is broad improvements to engagement scores when the actual conditions are getting worse and worse. And so that must be W, and you must have an explanation in your back pocket that you use every day to explain that. Absolutely. But I will admit, when it first happened, my instinct was things are bad, engagement scores will go down. And then our data said they weren't. They were all going up. And so I went out and was like, all right, I don't happen to have a theory to explain this. Who does? Who has some real foundation for it? And what I ended up finding is a lot of context around how people deal with traumatic change and natural disasters. What usually happens is there's a heroic period. So there's a surge in adrenaline, activity, commitment to trying to get through this moment, what we generally would call engagement in most surveys. And so that lasts for some period of time, dependent on the nature of the change and the resources people have to sustain it. But eventually, it peters out. And the drain on resources and the inability to refill them can really cause a downward slope in this process. And so the, as Cultramp looks at our data, we have been paying attention to what people have been saying about how the mood has been shifting. And so our expectation, if these theories are correct, is that the engagement surge will be followed by an engagement slump if organizations aren't proactive in making sure that employees are not overtaxed. I've had conversations with CHROs who have said, you know, our leaders are super excited to see the engagement going up. They're seeing productivity go up. But we're hearing from employees that they can't keep it up much longer. That when all hands on deck is a thing you do for a moment in time, and then you have to send people back below for rest. And that trigger moment, they're worried will not become clear until people are exhausted. I'm starting to see signs that it's happening. I'm starting to hear no formal studies yet, but a lot of anecdotal information about people encountering the difficulty of drawing firm boundaries so that work doesn't just totally overwhelm their lives. And I imagine that's starting to show in the data, but it'd be interesting to hear if you think we are starting to hit the end of the heroic period. I definitely think we are. I think in North America in particular, with the start of school, the end of summer, there's going to be a lot more people who are going to find themselves sort of throwing themselves at work, but being exhausted and not replenished by it. In some of the talks I give, I talk about how a lot of the basic foundational infrastructure has broken down for people. And so not only are they spending more effort to keep things going, they have less opportunities to recover energy. And so we're actually doing a number of studies right now. If this conversation were in a week or two, I probably could tell you where we are really looking at have those numbers switch. Some of my customers have started reporting that their engagement scores have started going down. So I definitely see some signs that the slump is coming. I don't think it has to be as bad as it could be if organizations can really stop and say, all right, have we made it through the danger period? Do we need to keep people working full tilt to survive as we did when you know, everything was melting down? 
or can we begin to back off a little bit, give them some time to recover so that they can be sustainable into 2021, and we don't end up having a turnover explosion of our most valued employees when suddenly the economy gets better and there's other jobs they can jump to. I think the last thing any organization wants is for their best, most talented employees who've learned the most during this period to leave just because they want to get the taste of this experience out of their mouth and try something new. Man, I really appreciate your optimism. I'm not sure that I see a time coming when there's going to be a lot of opportunity to leave. My sense is that we're about to encounter a more severe lockdown that runs until it's springtime in Boston, so May next year. And it's just going to get more severe as we go along. How would you imagine, right? You're basically saying if your engagement scores are going up, get ready because whatever goes up must come down. And, and we know there's a heroic phase, but in sustained trauma, how does that last over years? Is there work that shows that? Yeah. I mean, the particulars of that aren't my specific expertise, but the sustained trauma depletes resources, it changes thinking. Um, so for example, research on how people think after a prolonged exposure to periods of scarcity have shown that there's different approaches. When another risk appears, if you've been spending a lot of your mental energy focused on how do I survive, you tend to lock down. Whereas if you haven't had that sort of experience, you are more likely to be imaginative or try to figure out a way out of the problem. Neither one is necessarily better. The reality will, of the context will always play a role. But I think there's a key difference in the way people are going to think about things after this is over. I think we also need to be thinking about this as a marathon. That, but we're really in two places. One, this is a marathon. So there's going to be some pacing of, you know, is this the moment to go super fast? Do we need to catch our breath now? Otherwise, we're not going to make it to the end of the marathon. But the thing that's a bit flawed with that metaphor is that there's something after the marathon. And I think that's what I'm trying to say when they think about the time afterwards, because as leaders, our responsibility is not just to the organization today, but also to the organization tomorrow. And so if we get too narrow in our focus on just getting through right now, we set ourselves up for a whole bunch of other problems later that we could have avoided or mitigated. That's really interesting. So part of what I'm hearing in the undertones of what you're saying is that engagement may have gone from being broadly perceived as sort of a super-duper attitude survey thing to being a primary indicator of safety in the organization. And so when you see engagement scores rise in difficult times, it's an indication that the organization looks like a safe place. And when they start to fall, it may be an indication that the organization doesn't look so safe. Do you have a way of thinking about your work as a safety measure rather than sort of higher up in Maslow's scale? Yeah, honestly, engagement is really supposed to be a measure of people's commitment to the work that they're doing. Are they, what sacrifices will they make for it? Well, how much rejuvenation of energy do they get from participating in it? And so the questions you're asking are really about how are people able to sustain? And 
wanting to sustain in that context. And that runs the gamut of Maslow's hierarchy. Some of that is like, do I like this job? Some of that is, can I keep this job? And I think in good, I, I sometimes talk about summer and winter economies. Summer economies, things are going really well. We start thinking of engagement as ping pong balls and, and ping pong tables and other like recreational activities. As long as they're happy, they won't be. And in the more winter economies, when things are bad, we think of like engagement as, no, it doesn't matter because they have no other choices. So we can just forget about it. And it has different effects at different times. So when turnover is an issue in those summer economies, that's when we really want to focus on, do people feel like this is their best bet? When we're talking about a winter economy, we really want people to be thinking in terms of, does it make sense to continue weathering the storm here? Can I devote real attention and have this not just deplete my already scarce resources? And so there's a safety component in the interpretation. And a really good survey doesn't just measure engagement. It measures the various things that people are experiencing so that you can see which ones are driving that engagement forward, up or down. And so you know, when we look at our surveys, we find different connections between engagement and the drivers, depending on what's going on. So we're sort of coming to the close of our time. I wonder if there's some specific guidance you can provide to leaders on how to use the kinds of tools that you have. How can a leader effectively use behavioral and engagement data to make solid decisions? How do they do that? So I think one domain is better communication. Often the engagement data will flag places where the intention and the reality have become disconnected and employees need to have a much better walkthrough. I had one leader who actually had bonuses not be paid, nobody got promotions one year because things were bad, and they were just like, we don't need to care about engagement because we can't give them money. And looking at their scores and what people were writing, like, they don't really want money right now. They want to know that they're safe. Tell them why they should weather the storm with your company, and you're going to hold on to them into the next go-round when you do have rewards to offer. If you just sort of write it off as, I can't do anything, then they're just going to leave and you're going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that's one thing that leaders can use the engagement data for more effectively. Other things is thinking about process. A lot of disengagement. I often think of really what's happening is we're doing a survey to measure what are the sources of disengagement? What is making people who want to do good jobs feel less inclined to do so? Is it bad technology that's making their job harder and slower? Is it that they have bad communications between departments? These are all things that are managed through policy or through leadership decisions about how things can and should work together to make it smoother for employees to do their job so that they will do what you want them to do. And so very concretely, thinking about this as procedural improvement, not employee happiness. Got it. That's great. So what would you like the audience to take away from our conversation? I think I'd like them to take away that they actually have the ability to influence things, either to make them better or to help people better accept what they're living with. A lot of times I advise leaders to recognize that they can't fix everything, but just acknowledging that there's a problem, they're working on it, and that you care about how it impacts people can keep them invested in working with you through until you actually can make things better or the world itself changes. 
it's not so much that employees need to fix everything, but they need to know that you care about making sure that things are as good as they reasonably can be. That's awesome. So we're going to wrap this up here. Would you take a moment and reintroduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you if they want to follow up? Absolutely. My name is Kenneth Matos. I'm the director of people science at CultureAmp. You can find me on LinkedIn at Dr. Ken Matos or email me at kenneth.matos at cultureamp.com. Thanks for taking the time to do this, Ken. I really, really appreciate it. I'm sure the audience got a lot out of it. And let's do it again. This was the beginnings of a very interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. So you've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Ken Matos, who is the Director of People Science at Culture Amp. And thanks for tuning in. We will see you back here next week, same time. Bye-bye now. Thank mm-hmm. you.